welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast and the second episode in our course on worship. Thank you for joining me. To explore the history of Christian worship, it's necessary to begin with Jewish roots. Our worship is built on Jewish foundations in three primary aspects, the temple cult, synagogue worship, and the family meal. The temple cult, centered in Jerusalem, was the focus of national religious life for the Jewish nation in the period leading up to the exile of 586 BC and from the return until the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD, or CE, the Common Era. As a center for sacrificial worship, the temple was both an expression of a national religion and a pilgrimage site to promote personal piety. Through daily sacrifice, prayers, and the use of psalms, Israel was dedicated to the divine desire for acceptable sacrifices. Following the exile of 586 BC, the Israelites in captivity developed synagogue worship as a means to remember the temple and safeguard the religious life of the people. Designed as a survival agency, the synagogue helped the exiles recall their shared identity and rehearse the promises of God. It also served as an educational center, recalling the story of the Exodus, the gift of the law, and the entry into the promised land. In this way, the Israelites maintained their unique identity and their confidence in God's saving activity. I want to give you a quote from Rabbi Laura Novak Winner, who shares an insight from Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Heschel taught that when Jews lost our collective connection to sacred space, the temple in Jerusalem, we had to shift our collective focus to sacred time. Our holidays align with the seasons of the year. Our prayer life aligns with the rising and the setting of the sun, as well as the generations of those who live before us and will live after us. End quote. The final locus of Jewish religious life was the family meal. Prayers of thanksgiving, intentional dialogue, and food rituals all serve to cast family meals as important worship moments. The Passover Seder, which Jesus and his disciples celebrated at the Last Supper, recounted the exodus from Egypt and the symbolic meaning implied in the food. A child would ask, what is the meaning of this rite? And the answer explained the past and pointed to the future. So let's move on then to the next phase of our survey. The beginning of Christian worship, like the founding of the Christian church, is difficult to identify. The Last Supper immediately springs to mind, as does Peter's Pentecost sermon and the mass conversion that followed. How about the baptism of Jesus or the many gatherings where the disciples shared a hymn and a prayer? Regardless of our answer to this question, we can say with certainty that Jesus and his disciples were committed to worship, both within their Jewish tradition and later as an emerging group with a distinct identity. Communion, or the Eucharist as we shall call it, held a unique place in the emerging rituals of the Christian church. 
both as a symbolic act instituted by Jesus himself and as a culmination of the various forms of Jewish worship, the Eucharist is rich with meaning. James White has argued that all the elements of Jewish ritual, temple, synagogue, family meal, were present in the Last Supper and guaranteed that this would be the central ritual of the emerging Jewish Christian community. The elements of sacrifice, temple, uh, commemoration, synagogue, and ritualistic eating, family meals, come together to create a rite that functioned on several levels. Gregory Dix, in his landmark study of the Eucharist and its meaning, reminded scholars that the ritual is both words and action. From uh, Mark fourteen twenty-two, we get this. Uh, he took bread, and having said the blessing, he broke it and gave it to them. The four key actions, taking, giving thanks, breaking, and giving, point us to other important meals, such as the feeding of the 5,000 and the meal that concludes the journey to Emmaus, and give the ritual a form to be followed. Already in Acts chapter 2, the members of the Jerusalem church are breaking bread in private homes. When Paul recounts the Lord's Supper and gives direction to the church in Corinth, he adds a caution about sharing a meal while conflict exists, expanding the ritual then to include the need for reconciliation. Also beginning with Paul, and common by the end of the first century, was the observance of Sunday for worship. The terms the Lord's Day and the first day of the week became synonymous, both as a symbolic link between the new life of creation and the Christian faith, and as a weekly anniversary of the resurrection. While many of the Church Fathers encouraged daily devotions, they were insistent that believers gather weekly to worship. By the middle of the second century, a form began to develop. This quote is from a text called Justin Martyr's First Apology, comes from about the middle of the second century. On Sunday, we have a common assembly of all our members, whether they live in the city or the outlying districts. The recollections of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as there is time. When the reader has finished, the president of the assembly speaks to us. He urges everyone to imitate the examples of virtue we have heard in the readings. Then we all stand up together and pray. On the conclusion of our prayer, bread and wine and water are brought forward. End quote. It is unknown if this ritual was followed consistently across the church, but it has enough in common with later practices that we can assume that a consensus was emerging. We'll move now to worship in the Middle Ages and continue to see the line from what Justin Martyr describes down to today. The Middle Ages, the period from the eclipse of Rome to the Renaissance, somewhere between the 13th and 15th century, is long enough that generalizations are hard to make. But that won't stop us. 
We can see documentary evidence in the form of worship resources, some printed as early as the late 500s, along with the emergence of more comprehensive resources in the middle part of the Middle Ages, the Middle Middle Ages, I suppose. So let's begin our second look at a thousand years of compressed history, starting with sacramentaries. Sacramentaries are prayer books created specifically to celebrate the sacraments, celebrate being the standard way to describe performing them in the context of worship. It's important to note that there were seven sacraments by the middle of the Middle Ages, baptism, confirmation, communion, confession, marriage, ordination, and the last rites. Imagine then that you have a handy worship resource that some clever person has developed for you, and you become dependent on it whenever you celebrate the sacraments. The resource is well written, and it reflects the best understanding of what's happening at this moment and in the service, and the people seem to like it. I expect that when you set down the resource and continue with the service, you might suddenly wish you had one to cover the rest of your time together, and that's what happened next. The Missal was the answer, spelt M-I-S-S-A-L, meaning a type of book that included not only the aspects of former sacramentaries, but also epistles, uh, letters of St. Paul in the New Testament, Uh, antiphons, chants used during the canonical hours, and directives for preaching. Again, by the middle of the Middle Ages, the Missal took off, sorry, I couldn't resist, uh, and became the new standard resource for worship. Meanwhile, this growing desire for order also touched liturgical action, meaning the ways in which priest and congregation would physically celebrate the service, actions as well as words. This, of course, called for another resource, this one called an ordo. Eventually, the content of the ordo also found its way into the Missal, uh, then renamed the Pontifical. Worship at this time is beginning to resemble something we might recognize. If you were in a larger center or a cathedral, the seat of the bishop, you would experience something similar across Western Europe, again, something that shares the outline of our worship today. To begin, we see readings, psalm, sermon, intercessions, prayers, and the Eucharist. To this, we begin to see additions, including the Gloria Patri, glory to God the Father, either said or sung, a confessional litany with the words, Lord have mercy, usually sung, and the peace extended to the congregation, saying, peace be with you. After the reading comes the sermon, followed by the Nicene Creed. Intercessions would lead to the Eucharist, uh, with more musical settings shared. Late Middle Age worship marks the beginning of the Protestant movement and some limited departure from the past. The primary departure is the shift to periodic Eucharist and shift to the service of the Word. Many elements remained and remain still, with the exception of weekly Eucharist. And even this is varied by tradition, with the Church of England maintaining weekly Eucharist, 
uh, with the Reformed tradition, particularly Calvinist churches, with less frequent communion. It was the Swiss Reformation where most of this conflict took place regarding the frequency of communion. Over in Zurich, uh, Zwingli favored annual communion and no more, a view that found some favor in Geneva. Calvin, in Geneva, was an advocate for the old form, weekly Eucharist, with civic voices tending to the view of Zwingli. As a compromise, uh, Calvin suggested uh, monthly, but it was too much for the hardliners, so quarterly became the accepted practice, in September, then at Christmas, Easter, and early summer. This remained the practice in my denomination, the United Church of Canada, and other members of the Reform tradition until very recently with a gradual shift to monthly. I expect Calvin would be proud. Speaking of Calvin and the early Reformers, there was considerable emphasis placed on congregational autonomy. Choosing their own minister with some oversight and choosing the precise form of worship was an important aspect of Reformed theology. In many ways, it is the third leg of the stool we call the Reformation, the first being the idea that we are saved by faith alone, the second being the priesthood of all believers, and the final leg, the freedom of congregations to govern themselves, always within limits, of course. In the United Church of Canada, formed of Methodist, Presbyterian, and Congregationalist churches, this freedom was more important than ever, with three different traditions coming together. Worship was one of the primary places where local autonomy became important. If you were accustomed to one pattern of worship, the newly formed denomination was not going to stand in the way of that pattern continuing. In the introduction to Celebrate God's Presence, our our latest worship resource, care is made to highlight the idea of ordered liberty, first described this way in 1932. In our worship, we are rightly concerned for two things. First, that a worshiping congregation of the Lord's people shall be free to follow the leading of the Spirit of Christ in their midst. And secondly, that the experience of many ages of devotion shall not be lost, but preserved, experience that has caused certain forms of prayer to glow with light and power. End quote. So I think we'll end here for this episode. Next time, we're going to look at the service in some detail, including the idea of thematic worship, uh, the church seasons, and the way readings are selected. So again, thank you for joining me, and don't forget to visit the website, p2.ca slash podcast. Thank you.